Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. The show is supported by Illustration X. Go and take a look at their incredible global range of illustration and animation portfolios now at illustrationx.com. If you like the music for the show, go and listen to Dirty Freud over on Spotify and all good music platforms now. Today I'm joined by Rich Jones, Executive Creative Director of Wasserman, in a sweeping, broad, wide-ranging conversation about creativity, about maintaining the magic, no matter how many promotions, how many roles, and restrictions within a business we might encounter in our careers, the smell of marker pens and the gravity of old drawing desks, among other things. Hello and welcome to the show. How are you doing? I hope you're good. It's Friday as I record this. It's not triumphant. Fridays are not triumphant anymore, are they? At least they're not for me. Um, (laughs) I'm joking. They're good. They're still good, aren't they? I'm not running around town and out on the beers like I once was. But they're still good. They come with an undercoat of nerdy magic these days, I think. (laughs) Rambling into the weekend. How are you? I hope you're good, I hope you're feeling creative, I hope you've had a good week. I was going to say productive week then, but I'm trying to I'm trying to sort of train myself out of that mindset. Creative week, that's the one. A fulfilling week, let's go with that. Because um, productive's old hat, isn't it? I've been working on the, the first edit of the Creative Condition book this week, and it's... Um, it's a monster of a book. It's over 120,000 words now, so that's no mean feat working through an edit of that size. But I'm loving it because it's the first time I've had it in front of somebody, as in my editor, um, that isn't me in 18 months of writing. The first set of eyes on it. And um, he came back with glowing praise where I felt it was promising and critique about what I felt it needed and lacked. So that was awesome, that's what you want. You don't want someone to come back. It's too expensive to pay an editor for them to come back and go, brilliant, good to go, see you later. Uh, here's the invoice. <laughs> so so I was made up and um, something in the book that jumped out and it was in the education chapter. So I'm talking about creativity and how education and creativity starts at birth and maybe even before in terms of nature and then into nurture in life. And um, it was John Newbegin way back on episode five when we were talking about the preposterous EBAC situation with the Tories prioritising all the STEM subjects and sort of diminishing the importance of the arts, which is just ridiculous because you need a rounded education. You know, it's not one or the other. And John said um, that This all started with the Foster's Education Act in 1870, which was about an education for for in-part life and for industry. Because back then we were talking about people sitting in factories and um, in a managed environment, right? So the education worked back then. 
but talking about how redundant the current education system is, which still adheres to that model in today's world, so it doesn't work. The world's changed dramatically since then. Um, and it's, it, it was that. It was the idea that productivity was a badge of honour and that hard work is everything, you know. But if hard work and productivity are without life and directionless, then fuck that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway, that's a tangent. That's a big. That's a, that's a long way of saying are you looking forward to your weekend? But there we have it. By the time this drops, it's going to be Monday anyway, so maybe that's redundant. Anyway, without further ado, a big thank you to the Saponta, Saponta, sponsor, founding sponsor of the show and key supporter, Illustration X. They're wonderful. They represent a global range of illustrators and animators, including my good self. But they've supported this podcast and all the other things that I do, and that's what you want from a good agent. Um, and you can find them at illustrationx.com. They're brilliant. Go and check them out. Global illustrators, animators, large-scale mural specialists, lettering specialists, fashion illustrators, the rest of it. Brilliant. Um, so Rich Jones today was a joy to talk to. A real joy. We could have gone for days. Um, partial list of topics covered we talked about in their curiosity and the way that Rich like many of us in this industry, was ill-suited to kind of formal education and the lecture scenario. Um, But how his innate curiosity won out and found him this career in agencies. And how he almost became an aeronautical engineer. It's a good story. He talks about romanticising the smell of marker pens and those big old drawing desks and how he greatly misses that, but how we have to adapt with the times. And there's a brilliant quote in there about... um, transitioning and technology and we, we get into AI and you know and, and why it's not all that different to when Apple Macs burst on the scene way back when and how seismic that was but we cover a lot and, and I loved this conversation and I think you're going to take a hell of a lot from it and we reach as a, a real skill for getting to the nub of what matters in a creative idea and I think and this adheres to another chapter in the book that I've been writing about called the commodification of creativity and why it's stultified and dead in a lot of bigger businesses because there isn't the allowance there isn't isn't the luxury of time to ruminate and to let the unconscious do its work and to really get the good creative ideas through because there's so much time is money mentality flying about so he talks about managing that while working in a lofty role a big agency and i think it's going to be golden advice for a lot of people and some really great ideas and it's not what you know he, he, he's great for a soundbite, he's rich, but it's not waffle. It all works and it makes sense and he, and he shows it time and time again with his awesome work. So we're going to get into that. Um, hit me up if you want to have a conversation. Hello at bentallon.com on the email. At bentallon social media, you can do at creativecondition underscore. I check that less often. I do check it. Email's the quickest way if you want a quick answer out of me. Um, get in touch, let us know who you want to hear from. Big episodes coming up not going to sit here and name them all again like I tend to do. We're going to get into the show today, so I hope you enjoy it. Rich Jones, Executive Creative Director of Wasserman. You can see other people may not be able to. I've been around for a while. Um, so, you know, I was you know, growing up in the 70s. You grew up in a time where there was very little distraction other than the world. You know, there was very little that could get in the way of what you wanted to do. And I, and I spent a lot of my youth outside, um, you know, climbing trees, doing all the stuff that we sort of pretend is normal or pretended was normal and now you realize it's not but i spent a lot of time doing that and when i wasn't doing that i was always drawn to reading drawing all those kind of things i would often find myself just 
hours later, still with a biro drawing the same, drawing something on a page somewhere. And it, and it just became something that I was, I was really quite passionate about, but didn't know why. And I think at that age that you don't. Uh, and as I got into sort of the more formal schooling, um, my father was uh, in the army. So we, we lived we lived where we lived based on where he was. And there was no sort of thoughts about what does education mean beyond 16, really? And even why, why do what you do? There was no plan in my mind for what I wanted to do. What I found was that um, I, I really loved art just as a way to explore myself as much as anything else and just to express myself because I could be quite introverted. But on the other side of it, I was quite technical. I quite liked some of the technical stuff. I did quite like the sciences and all that kind of stuff. And I was trying to find something that put the two together and nothing really made sense. It was just like, nothing made sense. There was no real guidance. And I was very fortunate though, that uh, my uncle ran a design studio in London and it came to that stage at 13 when you're told to go and do job, you know, work experience. And you're thinking, work? 13? I mean, you know, the days of working down the pit surely have gone. Surely they don't have to work. But when I did that, and I have to say what it did is it brought at that time as well, it was a much more sort of technical job in some ways design than it is today. And it brought those two things together. And there's something about, and there will always be something in my mind about great big tilt top desk. And, you know, and pens and that smell of marker pens and pads. There's something that will always, always stick with me and always does. Um, and I miss it terribly. Mm. But, you know, what I found though there and at that stage, and I then went from school, I then went to college rather than going on to university. And I went and did graphic design and business studies because it had to be practical. It had to be some sort of practical output on this. Um <laughs> And I did, two, I did two years of that and, and enjoyed it and enjoyed it. And it was at a time when I suppose from a, from a, from a sort of, you know, industry point of view, everything changed, you know, 86, 88 is actually when we saw the introduction of the Mac plus, you know, the industry itself changed. And I remember looking, the look in the eyes of some of my lecturers, especially my typography lecturer, when he was sat there in front of his photo set machine and he wanted to teach us how to do all of that and how to actually character count and do all of that sort of real rich, deep, intuitive craft. And then he'd been told he had to show us how to type on these funny little sort of like off-white boxes in the corner. And it was a real change that I think still impacts, well, it doesn't massively impact the industry, obviously, but I think that that move away from um, time being time-based I think switched around about that time in the industry and it, and it became part of my career but yeah definitely I mean as a kid read a lot still do you know mm. I, I was interested in things that no one wanted to talk to me about I wanted to read stuff because I'd heard about it or you'd read a book you know again before the world of the internet you'd read a book and in a book it would say something and you'd go oh how do I find out about that I'm going to have to go and find another book. I'm going to have to go and find a library. I'm going to have to go and do those kind of things. And that that sort of, that fueled me and it, it's kept me going. And it's what keeps me going today. It's what means that, uh, you know, the nearly ripe old age of 53, I still write work every day. And I wish I had time to art direct and design, but I've got to be honest and say I don't. And also, very candidly, there are an awful lot of people in my team who are way better at it than I am. You know, from a talent point of view, I'm sort of so far behind them in the capability. 
Mm. But I think that's it. And that's and that's always stayed with me, just that innate curiosity, that want to understand, that want to self-explore as well, rather than necessarily being told. I was never great in lectures. It wasn't my thing to just sit and, oh, well, what you're telling me is the obvious worldwide truth. So I'll just note it down and repeat it back to you later. That kind of stuff was was not not really me. Mm-hmm. And that's caused me some interesting conflicts during my career. But, you know, that is the way it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that, that was it. I mean, and I think, you know, I, I grew up in a little place called Farnborough. If anybody's ever heard of it in Hampshire, the reason they've probably heard of it is there used to be big air shows there. Yeah. Uh, and my first job when I left college at 18, uh, a time when, you know, people talk about the challenges today in a time when really trying to find work, you know, 88 was was tough. Mm. You know, um, my dad found me my first job, typically organised man from the military. Uh, and my first job was at the Royal Aerospace Establishment in Farnborough. Yeah. Which felt like so far away from what I thought I was going towards. I thought I was, I'm going to be like this London, I'm going to be this creative guy. No idea what it meant to be a creative, no idea what it meant to be an agency, but that was kind of what I was going to do. And my dad said, I found you, I've got an interview for you. And I was like, I didn't, I was looking for a job yet, but okay. I thought I had the summer off. It's okay. And uh, I went in, got asked very weird questions by what looked like a lot of very old people in tweed suits at the time. That's how it felt. And I ended up in this job, which they said was a graphic design role, but actually meant I had to sign the Official Secrets Act. <laughs> I went and worked, I went and worked in some strange little porter cabin at the end of a runway. And then found out that actually what they wanted me to do was become an aeronautical engineer. Wow. My career almost went off in completely different directions at that point because you sort of go, wow, that's really amazing. You see, you're going to pay for this and support this. and put, Yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to put your thread. And I was like, that's not what I thought I'd ever do, but it could be interesting. Uh, and then if I'm honest, I was I was in it for, I was there for about a year. Mm. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, I was 18. I had no idea about the world. I got paid, which was like the first time ever, and it, got, and it happened every month, which was great. Um, but then I found myself one day in a room by myself with what can only be described as a, an un, unmanned bomb. You know, that's what it was. And I was being asked to do drawings, and and, and I was just like, I feel really uncomfortable. They're talking about aeronautical engineering, but yeah this thing flies but it definitely lands with a bang and i'm not sure i really like it and and it and it sort of just spurred me on to to, to do something different and, and i think that's a good thing but but it's always been a great anecdote someone asked me once you know do the um you know what's the pitch for yourself you know you're in a lift with someone how do you explain who you are and where you've come from and i was like uh board bomb maker becomes marketeer <laughs> and, and sometimes you sort of go and then, then you go and I still make a noise everywhere I go you know and it was just all that kind of stuff and it worked a lot for me when I was younger when I was trying to work out what I was doing mm. um, but I think what it also did is it, it made me realize that I could do an awful lot of things potentially but I wanted to do something that actually made me happy mm-hmm. uh, and something that no matter how bad a day was I still felt it fed my soul somehow mm-hmm. And I say to some of the young guys and, and in the team now, if you embrace this job for what it is, it's the greatest job you never, ever, never actually do. It's not a job. If you bring your your soul and your creativity to it and you're in an environment that allows you to, this is the greatest just do what you want every day of the week 
role you'll ever have. Mm-hmm. You know, and you've just got to think of it in that way and try and not get caught up in all the other stuff that goes on. I think you're absolutely right. I think that you know it's it's a psychology thing, but you if you can find the joy in you know in the freedoms it brings and the curiosity that you're allowed to express or encouraged to express, not even allowed. It's you know it's a great freedom when you when you start to really break it down. You know, I've gone from there's times when you feel more idealist and you want to you know it's clients you'd rather work for and all that stuff. But now actually, there was a big switch over after getting a big client quite early on for me and. I realized that I'd become a little bit too goal driven and and less about the day to day joys of it and actually appreciating the fact that I could schedule each day within reason and each week and each month. And that was wonderful. Take time out when I needed to and you know, and and leave time for all that unconscious activity and everything else. So God, yeah, there's a lot of brilliant stuff that goes on. But the mark the marker pen thing too that you mentioned there, that conjured images of my old Tech college course so you know just same thing those big desks just uh big drawing yeah. desks and kind of it was in an old industrial unit which we shared with a lot of bricklayers and things but those white partition walls and the, just the open space in there after school my word that was magic to me yeah and it, it, it so was and i was the same it was b-tech that i did as well and it was and it was the same thing and, and also suddenly for the first time ever we were doing like life drawing and it was real people that you were drawing not life drawing of a wooden model of a person you know it's just like really weird stuff that happened and I, and i and i sort of try you know to not lose sight of all of that and to try and find ways to still do that today and also as we build teams and develop sort of uh, and as i've developed teams over the years to try and keep that true sense of wonder going and that curiosity going and i think that's that's the biggest thing that's, that's the biggest challenge always to us now in the industry though and you must see this as well from your side is time mm-hmm. you know, we've become such a time-based hours-based industry it can be really hard to actually get people to continue to explore and find the real newness and not just latch onto the first thing that they they come up with mm-hmm. That's and that I think is one of the biggest challenges that we see today. And, and you know, I touched on technology at the beginning. Technology keeps on advancing. We've got great tools, and there's no way that any of us would be without them today. Uh, though in my spare time, I'll be honest, I still get a pen out and some watercolors and make a little bit of a mess because it, it just feels more natural. Um, but we just do need to be cognizant of the fact that these are still tools for us to actually express our ideas. Our ideas don't come through the tools themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and everybody there's the, the big the big debates within the industry and everywhere else and every social media channel you go onto about whether ai is good bad or indifferent for the industry it's just another tool mm-hmm. we still need to have ideas that we can feed into it and get something back from it and we'll find ways to use it um those that are truly creative won't care because the conceptual part still lives between your two ears and is shared between other like minds and between conversations and shared moments. Everything else is just a tool. It's a way of getting that stuff down. Yeah, um, I think that's that's a really you know that's probably a big change. But I still see it in the same way that I saw going to a library or looking for a book. It's just another way of trying to find an answer to a question I've got. Yeah, very much so. And if you assimilate these things and be aware of them and, and work out where they fit within the broader scale, you know, broader scope of things, then Absolutely, they can become a positive, you know. Mm. Uh, invariably, it's going to cause change, but then what didn't? You know, what advancement in tech didn't? 
Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've all seen it. Like I, I mentioned that Apple back in sort of like, you know, the early 80s, mid 80s, that was a massive change for the industry. Mm. You know, gone went the boards not long after that, gone went the slides, gone went everything else. Uh, gone went the tracing paper overlays and trying to work out what Pantone color looked like when you split it into CMYK. You know, all of that went. For a while, I'm sure all of us went, oh, it went for the worse. And then we, we caught up and realized, and it's that change. And as they always say, when you go through change, changes like grief, you get stages that you have to move through. There's those that leap to the very end and go, this is brilliant. There's those that sit in the middle and they're not really sure. And there's those that always want to look back. Yeah. And and that's just the way the way that we are. That's because we're humans. And I think that's the thing. You know, we're not we're not robots, we're not employees, we're human beings in roles, and we all understand and look at the world in different ways. And and we we have to work our way through it. You know, you can't just tell someone tomorrow you're doing this and they go, okay, that's fine. You know, we're not we're not able to do that. We have to resolve all our inner conflicts and issues to, to get to a decision. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also why we've seen and COVID pushed it as well. While we've seen people stepping away from the industry, they've decided they don't like where it's going. They want to find a different way to fill up their sort of like you know emotional and intellectual and creative soul, and, they, and they've gone and done that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, God, yeah, you know, you can't surrender too much of that and remain happy because it's so personality driven and all about mm-hmm. experience and feeling and, and and trying to tap into the emotion of anything from the client to the person doing the work, and and it has to be. You know, it's, it's very organic what we do, and I think you have to you have to retain that. You know, it's when we surrender too much of that and stop paying attention to all those feelings. And like you said about time, when all that is kind of crunched too much, then it goes against why you got into this in the first place. And even if you're not consciously aware of that, it can cause great unhappiness. It really can, and uh, and I think I'm, I joined I joined Wasserman where I am now just before just before the pandemic, just before the world changed totally. I mean, literally like a month before. So I'd hardly got really to meet the team or to understand how they worked when we were suddenly all doing this, staring at each other on screens every day. And there was two things that I think it did. is is One, it it created an immediate barrier for some. This is very, I don't know, this isn't a collaborative way of working. You know, I was talking to someone about this during lockdown. How often do you spend a whole conversation staring at somebody's eyes normally? <laughs> you know, it's very it's very confrontational. And how often do you sit like six inches away from someone or 12 inches, depending on what your eyesight is like, between six and 12 inches away from someone when you're talking? Yep. And it's really confrontational. And I think it, it threw an awful lot of people. And we, we had to very consciously find ways to bring all the team together. And we recruited during that time as well. And we grew during that time. And and we just sort of did, we tried to do what would be really natural things. So we'd start every day with a cup of tea and a chat, all of us. Mm-hmm. And it was never a, we're going to tell you what to do. Yeah. It was a, hey, how are you? What's been going on? We, we set up, when we first went into lockdown, little sort of like things for us to do at the weekend. We, we'd create little tasks for each other. You know, do a self-portrait. Um, take a photograph of the most interesting thing you see just anything to sort of enable everyone just to express themselves outside of work and find ways to actually understand each other as people because I think especially with with well all human beings but from my experience of running creative teams it's the person that does the work not the job title not the role and you have to understand that person 
by understanding that person, you start to understand how to help them help themselves. Yeah. I was talking to one of our young creatives the other day and saying, you know, there's sort of two things you have to sort of work on. You know, one is your practice. This is a practice. You aren't done because you've got a job. You know, it's like any art, it's a practice every day. You have to find a way to do it. And the second one is then your processes and, and finding ways that work for you to let the ideas in and to get the ideas out. And my way isn't necessarily their way. And you've got to be willing to open yourself up and find different things that work for you. And we and we learned that a lot during uh, during COVID. A lot of people wanted to talk a lot. So we, you know, we used whatever channels we could to have lots of conversations. A lot of people actually used it in a very different way. It was a time for them to be able to not be constantly bombarded and disturbed. And they could close everything down and go away and think. And, you know, I talked to Sam, who's uh, our creative director, group creative director, who had been there before and now. And, and he's like, people came alive during that time in many ways, you know, which was, I mean, it's so awful that the world had to go through that for us to be able to free up creatives to actually have space in a commercial way to find themselves and to find their own practices. You know, it's horrendous that that's what it took and it's horrendous what happened during that time. But what I think it's seen us on the other side of that actually as an industry is recognising again the need to have time and space. Yep. You know, I remember, I'm, the world was very different when I was a young creative, but, you know, there was always that, the team would just go out. You'd get a brief and you'd disappear. Mm -hmm. Whether you'd go and sit in a park, go to a library, wander around a museum, do whatever. Yeah. Quite often go and sit in a pub. Let's be honest, it was that kind of you know time and I was a lot younger. Um, but you would take yourself away from the situation and just let that idea find its way into your mind yeah. rather than straight away. Okay, okay, yeah. When, when, are we, when are we presenting? Tomorrow. Okay, cool. You know, I'm going to jump on it and get on with it. And I'm very lucky in the role that I have. I, I get a chance to still do that. I can sort of manage my own time in different ways. But I've always been a fond believer of listen to the problem, understand it, ask some questions, and then leave it alone. Yes. That rumination. Just, just, just let it be. Yeah, it's key. And it's very, I think we have a tendency to go, you know, our logical brain is king. You know, you know it fights always to quantify and to, to to kill that kind of discomfort of not having an immediate solution or not having the answer. You know, the thought of going away on a Friday and coming back Monday still in the same place terrifies a lot of people and, and it's quite biological or neurotic, however you want to put it. But actually, once you get used to that sort of, and this is something I've learned through writing actually quite accidentally, because I always remember people like Stephen King and Haruki Murakami talking about, you know, their different ways of expressing that idea that these characters started to take on a life of their own in their books because they've been left you know, in a drawer for six weeks and then things would happen when they were washing up, whatever. It's a classic shower thought idea. But actually, you know, that we is, and again, going back to the science, that there's a lot to support this idea that our unconscious is as active as our conscious mind. So that's actually really important. And it was, I had James Brown on the show, the founder of Loaded Mag in the 90s, and he talked about, you know, that how their office was like in a constant state of the teacher leaving the classroom, having left the class classroom, but actually all that time in the pub and just having, he, he put it as just fucking about and, and having fun and being relaxed and how the ideas would always come off the back of that state of mind. 
And I think there's something to be said about that. And then, like you say, the pause and the downtime and going busying yourself with something else is absolutely vital to allow the unconscious to do what it does very naturally. It's just that we live in a world of immediate solutions and, and where conscious is king. Um, that is hard. That, that, that's it. I think that's the thing is the expectation. And, and part of it is because, you know, as an industry, we were run by accountants for quite some time. And, and they, they set the direction of how the business worked. And it's an hours-based business now. And and it's not on clients not to understand. They, they've been taught that they've grown up through this. It's now as based. They don't, but I don't, I'm not sure they value the time that we're not working. Mm-hmm. Literally on the brief. We are working on the brief, but it's not working on the brief in that sort of way. And it's very hard to be able to actually put a, a rational sort of reasoning and conversation around that. Everybody just thinks it's, well, you're just not working. Yeah. But intuitively, as humans, we all know that's not true because we all have exactly the same thing. Someone asks you a question, you think you have an answer, and then two days later, you have a better answer because you've had a chance to think about it. Um, and it's a really difficult one, but we do try we try and find ways to make that work for the team. It's very hard, but we do try. Um, we just before, just literally just before we were about to, we all disappeared and went home for nearly three years. Uh, we started redesigning the space that we've got the studio in the, in the in the agency and tried to do it in that kind of way though so that we had a central focus which is like a big dining table which allows everyone to come together and just talk 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 about whatever it might be whatever's going on in their lives whatever they watched whatever's interesting just share and then we've actually put the desks sort of like all around the outside of the space facing a wall so when you want to go and focus you can just go and turn yourself away but knowing that, you know, as a business, we we have to think that way. That's what we do. You know, we create experiences in, in any format and anywhere. We have to think about how people actually will interact, what their experience will be, how much they'll take away from the day, what they'll learn while they're there, and create an environment that works in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we're seeing real benefits. I mean, when we came back from COVID, I mean, it was like, I mean, yeah, teachers gone, everyone's drunk. It was just like madness every day. Everyone was so excited to be back in a room together noise levels were sort of crazy there was no point trying to think you're going to be productive on that day in a literal output way but the productivity would then be seen on all the days either side of it because everyone would have been stimulated by so many different conversations Um, and no matter how much you try and we've, we've done it a lot using sort of collaborative tools online and everything else it's still hard to have those real surprising conversations because you're still focused on the task. You've still got the task in front of you that you're working on. Um, so we try and do that. And we, and we still we still now keep a lot of those processes up. We still have a call. You know, we, we get together every morning for half an hour just to see how everyone is, regardless of where everyone is as well. Hmm. Um, we share work as much as we can now rather than just doing work. Yeah. Um, but I think the big thing is it's just, yeah, yeah every, everyone needs to realise that they've got, they've got practice. And we keep practice. I'm still practicing. I've not yet done anything that I would say I'm done. I'm finished. I'm still practicing. One, one day, I'm, one, one day. No. So the, the day I decide that I I've done it is probably the day I should retire and do something else. <laughs> Hand it down. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm yet to ever write write that piece of work or art direct that thing that I've just gone. That's yeah. it. That's <laughs> the moment. Uh, and and I think and again it's an interesting one because in in the industry, it's all about, you know, your portfolio and what you've done. It's like, I'm more interested in what I'm going to do next 
And I think that's always been my thing is what do we do next? What do we learn? What have we seen? What do we do next? And next is way more important than what's gone. So though we spend, as we should, quite rightly as an agency time looking at the work that we've produced and feeling that it's working really well and we're winning awards and, and things like that are happening and we're really, really pleased with the work, we can never rest on that. And, and I think we've all seen over the time agencies that have rested on sort of previous glory and, and it's all slipped away. They've looked back too much. And I still remember, I can't where I was now, I think I was in Finland presenting some work and got to the end of this presentation and these clients, and I love Finns because they're always direct. You know, I love that part of the world. You get very direct questions. No nonsense. And I got asked very directly, so why do you think what you've done in the past matters to us at all? And, and I was went, it doesn't. And my honest answer was, it doesn't. It's what I will do for you and with you that actually matters. What I've done is irrelevant, other than the fact it's brought me to this room. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time I'd ever said that out loud. I'd sort of thought it a lot never said it out loud and I have to say I've never forgotten it and I say it often now it's, it's the most important thing for me it's like what we do next matters what we did we learn from and we move forward you know I've got 35 years of getting things wrong to learn from so I can do one day I'll do something right do you know what I mean it's like that's the thing is to keep going forwards it makes me think of where on extras when when uh, Ricky Gervais's character sort of crosses Ben Stiller as a director and so sort I of says sorry who are you and he goes nobody he goes that's right nobody <laughs> it's just obviously that's a rougher version but it's just you know it's like okay clean slate you know what about now <laughs> but but i think it's so i think it's so true and maybe that's that's probably what keeps me still writing and and still doing the work and still trying to have ideas is because i don't believe that anything i've done matters it's what i do that will mm-hmm. and also what that does is it starts to set a real culture you know, no one just sits around and points at everybody else and says yes or no. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all writing work. I I am challenged brilliantly by the most junior members in our team on a regular basis, and I love them for it because it actually makes my work so much better. Yeah. Because I don't see the world through their eyes. And I think that's one of the amazing things is we need to create teams and environments where different people's lived experiences really impact the work and really impact the way that you see it. You know, there's an awful lot of really boring work in the world today because everybody just looks at the same reference sites, reads the same things, watches the same films, looks at the same award shows, and it's really dull. Mm-hmm. And we need to sort of get back into actually understanding what people are seeing yeah, and finding and, finding and working with different people, not the same people. Yeah. You know, again, yeah. I grew up... Through an industry that was very, <laughs> very one look everywhere. Do you know what I mean? You, you, you just the difference was weird to see. You're like, oh, it's someone that doesn't look like me. That's yeah. unusual. <laughs> and I and and I felt really uncomfortable in that space as well. Mm-hmm. I've always I've always been interested by people that aren't like me. Yeah. And I've always liked that slightly outsider group as well. Those those are always the ones that I've been interested in because their stories aren't the usual. Yeah, and the usual is fairly dull. Well, you're absolutely right, and it's a, it's an industry that should thrive on diversity and difference, and 
the lived experience. I'll never forget going to London for the first time and staying above a, um, the Hootenanny in Brixton hostel, which most people who live in Brixton don't know you can stay there. <laughs> it was like 11 quid a night and it was so sketchy, but wonderful. You know, I'd come down from Preston where I'd stayed on after studying and just rooms, you know, dorms full of people from all over the world, each with a story and just so energized for the whole week. I was just like, exhausted going back, but it was magic. I had fuel for months, you know. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we've we gone out of our way to try and build a team that is diverse. You know, we've got we've got people from across Europe that work in the team in London. We've got, you know, I love being in a room where I'm not hearing English spoken. Mm-hmm. It just makes your brain suddenly kick into a different a different gear. I may not understand the conversation, but it just makes me listen differently. And also, if I don't understand what's being said, I have to look more at body language. I have to try and read emotion. I have to do all of those things. Mm-hmm. which then when you think about how you play that back through work, you can't always hear the work. Often often you don't hear the work. You have to look at it and it has to intrigue you enough to make you go, that person's doing something that I want to know about. That person's saying something. That person's got a point of view. I want to find out about it. Mm-hmm. So there's something really magical in that. And, you know, as a team, we try and encourage that and we encourage the difference. Yeah. And it's definitely setting our attitude as we as we grow the business creatively across the region as well, about not having a centralised point of view, but actually talking to people who are part of different cultures. We do we do some really lovely work for Foot Locker across Europe for their basketball. So we work with their basketball culture. And we've almost, to a degree, given away creative control actually to local communities. So we work with communities around key, key courts around the region that they've been refurbing as part of their you know their, their business outreach to try and uplift and everything else and what we've been doing is generating the idea and then working with the local teams those that are actually part of the culture to help shape and create the work so that then you get a really rich authentic story but you get this amazing and the guys have been to wherever they've been. we've been to milan we've been to barcelona berlin paris new york and a couple of other places to shoot and clap on common never forget never get forget your own home turf so clap on common as well um and what's amazing is you get all these very different stories very different real stories but there's a commonality that holds it all together it's that cultural linkage that you see globally but it plays out in very different ways and and i think that's really important as an agency for us we we talk about working in sport, music, and culture. And you can't work in culture and not want to enjoy and sort of like bathe in the cultures. You have to understand them. You have to be part of them. You can't force yourself into them. You have to listen to them and, and find ways to bring them into the work rather than putting work into the world. Um, so we spend a lot of time looking at, at the world in that kind of way and finding people with deep passions mm. that can be shared. It was, um, I had Simon and Apava from Dixon Baxi on the show on a couple of times and and Simon talked about the importance of the resonance of the work and how he would never and should never have the liberty of so he gave the example of um they rebranded AC Milan football club and um he talked about you know should never have the luxury of talking over a fan's shoulder and saying this is why we did this specific thing he said but he believed that the passion of the members of the agency if they do that job right because my question was about it being a poison chalice. And he said, well, no, actually, if it's, if it's done right, you know, we we, we, made, we made time for our 
members of staff to go to a number of games, spend time near the ultras, you know, feel the energy of the club. And, and he believed that that would resonate in the work in in some way, shape or form with those fans, even though he never had that liberty. And I thought that was magic. And, and I completely agree with that. You know, if you've... And it, and it, and it really does. You know, we, we're, we're fortunate as a business, we sort of do, we do several things. We do everything from consulting on brands and properties and what they should and shouldn't do through creative work and then live experience. So we, we sort of work all the way through. One of my teams has been to a couple of F1s recently. We're doing a lot of work with F1. And he was a passionate F1 fan before he went. But coming back has actually stood there with everyone else. And you just you just get a different energy from it and you start to understand it. And that really matters. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really big. And and it was I love the point about, you know, you can't you can't whisper in the ear of someone and tell them what you want them to think. And I remember being told very similar when I was a lot younger. And it was like, Remember, no one ever goes shopping with a strategist unless they're married to them. <laughs> so, you know, the strategy is fine, but if the work doesn't tell someone something that they care about, it's irrelevant. You can't try and, you know, you don't write work to go live in the world to try and explain why you wrote the work. You just got to do something that matters and do something that people get. Yeah. And it makes for sometimes sort of uncomfortable conversations being able to sort of be willingness to have those open conversations with clients to sort of go, I know you think that's really important, but no one else does. It's really hard, but really important, you know, and you need to be able to do that. But that takes trust. And that takes uh, a belief that we're doing it for the right reasons, not for our own reasons. And that's very much, as an agency, we, we talk about being willing to say no to things, even if it means we leave money on the table. If it's not the right thing to do, it's not the right thing to do. And it's only when you're willing to have that very honest, open conversation with people do you create trust so that when the day comes when you just have the most audacious idea ever that you know is right, people will go, okay, yeah, we know you don't just do it for the sake of it. That's great. I was at another briefing recently with another client and uh, one of their comments was, just out of interest when you come back to pitch work, I don't just want to see what you want to win awards with. And I was like, thank God for that. Because I don't plan on presenting work that will just win awards. Our, our idea, you know, anything we do should deliver against what we're trying to achieve. And it should talk to an audience in a way that they just fall in love with. Mm. Um, and I think that's the thing. You know, you, you have to have that. You have to have that willingness to do that and say, we have a culture where we talk about work that will make people fall in love. You just have to get into people's hearts. You don't have to sort of like win them and take them and own them, but you have to get in there because back to one of your points right at the beginning, we like to believe as human beings that we're intellectual and we're all, we're all about the intellectual rigor and we're not, you know, we're like half a step away from running around a field, working out what we're going to eat, what we're going to make love to. And you know, what's likely to want to fight us. That's we we're only, we're only a heartbeat away from that realistically in our evolutionary terms. And everyone forgets that. You know, we we buy things because we fall in love with them and then we rationalise our reasons later when somebody asks us. Yeah. So work needs to talk on an emotional level and then rationalise itself afterwards. Yeah, and, yeah. and, it's, and, it's, and it's getting into, you know, it's getting veering towards Jungian psychology and that the assimilation of dark and light, you know, is described as the, the basis of good mental health. And I think that's absolutely right. And I think if... 
it goes back to what you said about you know time in a pub, for example. If you can foster that culture in, in whatever restrictions and parameters that you have, whether it's in an office space and, and everything else, but make people feel like they are a part of an organism and actually that they have the space to, you know, to, to let you know when they're having a bad day and let you know when they just need some time, whether it's to ruminate on an idea or, or just to, you know, get over something in their personal life. I think if you if you can't bring that in, and like you said about the, you know, the, the half a step away from the more primal side of, of what we are as humans, I think if you can bring that into the creative process and actually acknowledge that and, and work with that as something good and instinctive, then that's when you start to really generate ideas and, and come up with, uh, you know, art and design that that, that is human and raw and, and yeah. touches people's lives. No, same. And I don't think it's a binary choice between sort of like intellectually correct and emotionally correct. And they actually live together. Yeah. It's a bit like whenever you're coming up with ideas or strategies, you know, part of it is just an emotional gut feel based on just information and understanding the world and understanding what you're doing. And then the other side of it is a very, can be a very logical, data driven, really robust response. And either one can lead. You, know, you can have amazing sort of like high hypotheses around what an answer could be and then you can back it up afterwards or you can take the absolute hard data and try and find a way to emotionalize it or you can just if you're really lucky do both at the same time and that's actually where i think sometimes it becomes more more powerful and potent but definitely it's one of those things that, to back to your point about you know bringing the whole human in and Again, my experience is really only running creative teams. But the whole human is what does the work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a horrible cliche, but it's like you put a little bit of yourself into every piece of work that you do because it comes from somewhere deep inside. If you actually really are invested in this as an industry and invested in this as a a career, I, don't know, I hate the word career and I hate the word job, but, you know, if you're invested in it, then that's what you do. You put a little bit of you into everything. It's why it's why you see creatives looking so deflated when someone says no. It's why I've seen people on the verge of tears when you lose pitches because they've just put so much in. The financial side, the robustness of the agency afterwards is not what makes them cry. It's the fact that they truly have put something that they believed into into a piece of work. And someone somewhere, after listening to them for 20 minutes, has gone, nah, don't like that. <laughs> and that's really hard but it, you know and that's that's part of recognizing though that we are in a commercial environment you know you, you yeah. don't just get to keep doing your own work absolutely but it is one of those things that we we truly opened up again i hate talking about covid but it's just been such a such a, a massive shift i think in the way that we manage teams and years in the industry of me trying to create this and and agencies not always want to do it but actually we've talked a lot about how we are as people you know we've been very open about our own personal challenges you know i've shared the experiences that we've gone through you know as a family as uh my son who's amazing uh 17 and i'm recently diagnosed with autism and the challenges that we've gone through because of that and working with him and helping him and i think what we did though is we shared those kind of things really openly uh and i think weirdly it was because though though i don't like this staring at people on screens all day. What you do do, though, is you find yourself inside their house. Yeah. You find yourself in their world. And it, it somehow breaks down a barrier that I think all too often offices and, and environments like that create. You have to mask. And I remember years ago sort of doing all these sort of, you know, what kind of personality are you? 
and they talk about your personal mask and your work mask. It's like, why are we masking? Why are we putting masks on? You know, and it, it, it's it's always annoyed me that you have to mask or people yep. expect to mask. You know, we, we should love people for who they are, love all of their differences rather than trying to create a common space. But, Very much so. I've been around, I, I had a and Motta's head on the show who runs an agency called Studio BND, Sanford, but never dull. And mm. uh, he's ADHD. And we, we talked at length about neurodiversity and about the links with autism and very fascinating. And again, something that I didn't plan for in this book, but this whole chapter's opened up about neurodiversity just through chance conversations on my dog walk. There's a friend who's just recently diagnosed as autistic and it's answered a lot of questions about the way he is and has been throughout his life. And I just... I've always just been absolutely fascinated by human beings and their stories. So I talk very openly with anyone about anything, really. Maybe it's partly to do with being from Keighley in West Yorkshire, an old mill town where <laughs> someone described it as being like one giant Star Wars bar. Um, <laughs> and I love that. I've grown up with an affection of difference and people and, and interesting characters and always have done. And it's what probably the chief reason why I wanted to be in this industry, because, you know, walking into a design college, you immediately encounter a lot of rich characters. Exactly. But I think that's the thing. And, and you're, it's interesting you talk about that sort of autism. I mean, I am I will put money on it somewhere if I went and tested it. I sit somewhere on the spectrum, just knowing the kind of person I am. Mm-hmm. You know, I can become deeply obsessed with things. I can become also massively reclusive. And then I can be massively, you know, I, I go through different surges in different ways. And I think a lot of people do. But, but what I think is really interesting, now that that's being talked about a lot more, what I actually really love is the labels they put on it. So that neurodivergent, so the divergent minds, and then typical. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. Typical doesn't create interest. Typical does what everybody else would do. And it's not that people that are neurotypical can't be creative, but what it does is it sort of recognises what education does, what work does, what everybody else does, which is try and funnel everyone into a typical way of being and working. And actually the creative industries especially, but actually if we're honest and we look about the greatest conversation, the most singular word that's been, or two words that have been used across industry in the last five years is design and creative. And everybody's talked about design thinking everywhere and the need for creativity within industry. You won't get that by asking people to work in a typical way every day. Uh You don't get that by teaching people just to know the answers. And I mentioned to you before we started, which was we did a piece of work for Kia when they launched the EV6 at the same time as they did their rebrand a couple of years ago. And we talked about that when we were talking to them and they were chatting about it as being their biggest first real creative statement about their new values and beliefs and everything else. And we, and I think they were really brave. They went with this idea. We convinced them to do a car launch without launching a car, but instead to actually launch the idea of the importance of creativity. And we agreed with them to set a challenge to a group of people from around the world to then do a hackathon, which was managed by Hyper and everything else. But the, the challenge that we put in the world is how do we make creativity as important as literacy and education? Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to be a creative business, you need creatives to fuel your business in the future. You know, if that's what you want to do, if you're going to set yourself up as a creative business, you need them. And the challenge is that you can't. And it was, it was, it was a, it was an amazing experience to watch and be part of. And what I loved was completely independent of the agency or anything else. And I suppose this sort of it's become a bit of a theme in this conversation. I like to let things go and see what other people do with them. This group actually came back with some brilliant ideas. 
really, really astonishing ideas. Three groups, three astonishing ideas. And we mixed up care employees, artists, educators to come up with it. But the final one that we landed in was, well, the final challenge they came back with was, how do we get education to actually help children learn how to ask questions rather than answer them? That's cool. And through that, when we then created a set of cards that were then trialed in some schools across Europe and, and showed really positive impact and reaction. But in some ways, as a couple of the educators on this, this piece said, that's a fundamental shift in education that you'd have to change, not just in teaching. And you can't put blame on teachers. I wouldn't dare my wife's a teacher. You can't put the blame on teachers because they're told what they're expected to yeah. do and how they're expected to work. And it's something though that we need we do need, I think, I think as a species, not just creatives, but as a species, to stop trying to force people just to know answers. Mm-hmm get people to start asking the really interesting questions again and be willing to people say fail but i think learn through experience rather than failure think about it as learning through experience by trying to answer a question in a different way and by trying to find a different question to ask and that's definitely what we're trying to build within our team it's what we try and foster in the work that we do for our clients as well is enabling people to understand a brand, but also to find a new understanding of a brand through it. So we don't do typical work. You know, we're not just doing, and, and it's not derogatory in any way, shape or form, but we don't do traditional advertising. We don't do traditional experiences. We try and create things that enable people to see things and experience and explore things differently, um, which is hard. You know, it's, it's hard It's hard work, but it's it's far more rewarding when you get it right and it's just managing the moments when you don't. And that's that's a that's a completely different skill set. Yeah. But that's also what we've tried to do. We we talk as a culture internally. We talk about we've created uh, and fostering this sort of culture of fearless creativity. And fearlessness is about it's not about just putting daft shit on the table. You know, that's not what it is. That's just stupid. Yeah. It's about actually creating a space where the team can say what they think without being judged. So it's a non-judgmental space. And it's about focusing on the things that we love within work rather than spending all the time on things that we don't. And Sam and I try and instigate when we do reviews. It's like, focus on what you love. If you've got a challenge with it, put an and or a but. I love this, but I wonder if it will be able to do that. I love this and wouldn't it be great if it could? Rather than spending what... I think, unfortunately, humans have become slightly conditioned to do is to point at the things they don't like. It's been an awful lot of time telling you what they don't like. Yeah. Let's find things that people love and then build from them. And and that's that's sort of the real backbone. Those two things are the real heart of what we're trying to do to create a culture where people can be who they are. They can say what they want. They can act in a way that allows them to bring their best work to the table. And but we can then challenge and build from it. Yep. Um, and it, is, it, is, it is hard to crack because it's uh, it's biological. You know, this this stuff comes down to, again, going back to the primal thing, but it, it's a, the sort of default fear mindset is very real. Yeah. So invariably, you have to work harder to create forward motion. But when you do create forward motion and you feel the benefits of that, it's incredible, you know. And 
it's just um, I've gone through a, a, a whole personal challenge recently of, of as I've learned more through researching this book of changing my own thought processes. And again, it's what you shine your light on. And when you stop shining that on the the niggles or the irritants or the the roadblocks and start to see that as a, an essential part of the process, then you know you're you're winning really because you're you're always progressing in some way. Yeah, there was a great song. I, I, I I'm open admittance. I do use social media. I don't love it, but I do use it. You know, I, th- I think you'd be naive not to these days. But I was on LinkedIn and somebody posted something the other day and they just used three lovely emojis just to say be one of these and it was a lifeboat a ladder or a light bulb mm. and I just thought you know what that is brilliant if you as a mindset you can decide you're going to be one of those three things in every conversation and every day to your point you reset the whole way that you behave mm-hmm. you stop being we used to talk about um sinks and radiators drains and radiators when when i was younger as well it's that kind of thing but the thing is it's too easy to your point and actually i think it's a human condition to chase the bad and to spend lots of time raking over why you don't like something so if you don't like it find a way to change it stop talking about what you don't like work out what you do but i was sam and i were sharing this thing about those those three things that life bulb ladder uh light bulb and his response was i almost think that's so powerful i should get it as a tattoo and it's like, <laughs> and it and it just it just really is. It was just one of those things that was, you know, we've been through so much, you know, together as people, and then also as leaders in a creative business over the last three years. It's like we've been through all of those emotions, and if you start your day and go, three things: lifeboat, ladder, light bulb. That's yep. all I'm being today. I don't care what happens. That's how I'm going to be. You do, and and. You know, when, when you see people and you give them that positive energy, they feed on it. Again, as, as all humans do, you know, when, you, when you're when you fed positive energy, you, you build it and yep. you grow it and it gives you confidence. And that confidence enables you to put the unexpected out into the world. Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, always going to be the challenge. And that's why I also, you know, going back to you know, my overall feel, I don't think I'm ever done and I never will be because tomorrow there's always going to be something else. Yeah. And that's what keeps me going, my innate love of people, my my constant curiosity about the world. I find it fascinating. I get very lost in very uh, irrelevant areas that I just become massively interested in for short amounts of time. And then suddenly I find them popping up six months later, you know, and I'm like, why am I? Oh, I remember now. Yeah. Um, and and actually, I think I was listening to one of one of one of your uh, podcasts. Uh, I can't it was a couple of weeks ago. And someone talked about their knowledge about being sort of very wide but not very deep. Or they may not have done that. That's how I heard it. And I thought that's something my wife always describes me as being. I've got knowledge that's ocean wide and puddle deep. So I know, <laughs> I know a lot of, I know a little bit about lots of things. And then I know an awful lot about some things that no one cares about. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm like that. But that that enables me to do my job because I can pull from loads of different things cultures events stories films music art life i can pull lots of things that i've seen and use those as a start point i used to love traveling i didn't love traveling but i used to love being other places and being that proverbial fish out of water and not knowing having to look to find out because you can't hear and you can't necessarily ask and i remember going to tokyo and being the most bewildered i've ever been in my life um 
but coming back with such a profound respect for such a different culture and really loving it because it is just so different the whole the whole mannerisms the whole way the whole world yeah um and, and i think that matters so much you know we've, we've got to stop carrying cliches about other people find truths understand the importance of actually being culturally relevant not just trying to be cultural yeah. and really 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 getting to love and enjoy other people's points of view and i think if i ever get to run for global emperor that will be one of my sort of statements is we all need yeah. to love everybody else's point of view yeah. um but I, you know i think that's 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 the biggest thing and, and for us as a, as a as a global business we do that a lot we, we connect across geographies across time zones we listen to each other and we listen to the different life experiences across our, our business mm. and then also on the other side of our business not just being a marketing agency but being a talent representation business again we we hear very different life stories and they really do impact you when you stop and listen and we're very lucky independently owned that actually casey rossman who, who is the name behind the business truly cares truly cares about people truly cares about society and it comes through our business you know that he, it is a real light bulb and ladder moment from yeah. from him because you feel it, uh, and it and it resonates throughout the business and i think it's why we we can truly say that we do work that actually works at a cultural level mm-hmm. because we start from that point of view as well yeah it's a little late, late in the day to ask you but where, where so in terms of your role you know, like what at what point does a does a project land kind of on your desk and, and what's your sort of the broad strokes of you know your week to week so to speak yeah so you know I, I i get to carry the longest title i can so it's executive creative director which you know always always makes me giggle um i also get that massive imposter syndrome uh, i'm going to divert i'm going to go off and you're going to find out i'm very divergent it's kind of the way my mind my mind works i'll wander off and i'll come back I always feel that massive imposter syndrome. You're on a call somewhere or you're in a meeting room and everybody's sort of like, so what do you do? And what do you do? What do you do? So similar question. And I and my usual answer is I'm executive creative director. And they go, what does that mean? And it's like, my job is to make sure we don't produce shit work. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, and if I'm really honest, you know, broadly that's my job is how do I make sure we produce good work? And I probably should learn to reframe it as good work rather than not shit work. <laughs> I've learned something today, Ben. You've changed my world again. You've rocked it in a different way. Um, but that is my role. I mean, I I still write work. Um, I spend time with clients. I spend a lot of time across the agency with our strategy teams, with our consultancy teams, with our account leadership teams. I spend a lot of time talking to um, my compatriots in the US, in the other agencies that were in the group. And... My reason for doing that is one, I like a chat, um, but two, it means that when I review work and when I'm looking at work, I've got a broader context of what else is going on, whether it be in a particular sport or in an industry or whatever else it may be, because other people know way more about that than I do. Well. And by listening to them, I can absorb some knowledge. But my job really is being there right at the start, making sure that we are understanding the ask which is the biggest, biggest challenge. Don't make assumptions. Move away from assumptions, understand the ask, be willing to ask the what may seem like an obvious or a stupid question, 
But if we're asking it, it's because we don't understand, and that's fine, uh, of clients, spend time with clients, meet them. And then working alongside our strategy team to actually not try and write strategy. I'm not a strategist, but to try and, again, make sure that we are digging around and find something really interesting. We've got some really, really bright, intelligent and thoughtful and clever people in the team. Um, And I ask dumb questions on purpose just to make sure we're thinking it through. And then also just to bounce it off each other. It's not it's not a relay race. You know, creativity is not a relay race. Creating work is not. We have to be in it together and share early hypotheses of what, oh, if, if you're saying that we could do this, is that what we want? Is that where we want to go? So I'll, I'll do that early on as we try and get it into like a brief. Once we get a brief that we're happy with, really, then my role is to just to create the space for the team be able to explore it to question it to maybe want to take it apart and put it back together again which i know frustrates many people but often that's their way of understanding it is to question everything in it regardless of whether i've said it's a brief i think we should be working to and whether i believe it's workable they need to take it apart to to sort of be able to contextualize it in their own world and then my, my role really is to then help guide that work guide that work through make sure we stand behind the work that we truly think will will happen and then when needed, I, I present to clients, talk to them, listen to them. I don't like the term presentation. I prefer to collaborate rather than present. But again, like this, mate, there's no way I can collaborate. It's a very presentational six inches away from each other in your face. <laughs> telling you, what you should buy. You know, it can sometimes feel really odd. It does it does feel like the antithesis of my personal way of working, which I don't like to hard sell. I like to take people on a journey, mm. listen to their their thoughts along the way and land somewhere that actually we truly believe will be impactful. But, so yeah, so that, and then then the other roles that I have um, as any ECD does, just the overall sort of culture, cultural piece within the agency. I'm obviously a part of, of defining that along with the rest of the management team and the way that we're structured as a business, that's also regional and global. You know, we're a very open structured business. Uh, I spend quite a bit of time talking to my fellow friends and creatives you know, whether it be in Canada or America or wherever else. Um, but yeah, and then probably if you ask Sam, who's, who's my group CD, he'll probably tell you I get in the way and I have a lot of opinions that nobody wants. But, you know, that's part <laughs> of my job as well. Uh, but then, but, 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 I think, but I think that's really important, you know, and, it, and it's key. And, and I've always said to everyone that we've, that we've been lucky enough to hire over the last three years, it's like, never just do what I tell you. If you don't agree with me, just say, I'm, I'm not going to be upset. There are times when I make I make the calls and I go, that's what we're doing. Because that's at the end of the day what I do. Um, but the big thing for me, and I always say this, is like if it goes well, I had nothing to do with it. And if it goes wrong, it's all on me. Yeah. Because then the team know I will take I will take the ultimate responsibility. If we don't win something, if it doesn't get delivered on time, if it's an absolute mess, that's on me every time. Mm-hmm. And the work that we've won awards with in the last couple of years, I was never there. And, and and I probably was never there on quite a few of them, but I was never there. You know, it's it's nothing yeah. to do with me. Yeah, that's yeah, a great way to look at it. Yeah, and, and I think that's important. But I, I still I still like being in the team. I'm I'm not I'm not interested in having my own sort of executive office suite. And you know, tea and coffee brought to me on a regular basis, and just the just the right temperature that I can nod off and no one will notice. I've got no interest in that. Yeah. I I love being in with the team. I don't really have a desk. I just have wherever I put my bag. 
Well, and that's fine for me. I spend most of my time wandering around with my phone in my hand trying to talk to people. That's, yeah. That's, that's the job. That is, and that's what I love about it. A great way to look at it and if you go the other way then it just flies in the face of all the lovely stuff we talked about earlier about discovering the industry and you know and you know all those scents yeah. and sounds and everything that makes it so rich and i think it's a great industry and i, and I you know been doing it for 35 years and i've gone through periods when i've fallen out of love with it but it's because i've fallen out of love with myself and what i'm doing rather than the industry mm-hmm. and i think you know there is the great resignation that we know is going on in the industry I think you've got to look at that and go, on the other side of it, maybe it's an opportunity for us to bring in different people, different kinds of people, different kinds of backgrounds. They don't all have to have come through art college. They don't all have to have graduated with degrees in English or whatever else it may be. Actually, now's the time for us to open this industry up to just passionate creators that may not be academic. Mm-hmm. And I actually think, though, that the, the, you know, the Great Resignation is a challenge now, I think we'll actually look back on it and see it as a really pivotal, changing, positive moment for the creative industry as a whole when we bring a much broader, more representative, culturally rich group of people into the industry. Um, Because at the end of the day, we've got tools these days that you don't necessarily need to have years of training to use. What you need to have is great ideas. Yeah, well, that's what's lacking. It goes back to what you said about a school system where people can ask questions rather than learn answers. Yeah, you know it's no different yeah. in our world. That you know that's it's, that curiosity is what drives the best work. Definitely, definitely. You know, um, and I just think if you've got if you've got great people with great brains who are willing to be able to open themselves up and talk about what they think, you can teach craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's teachable. You can't teach people to be natural, intuitive creatives. You can give them processes to work through but you can't teach them to naturally be creative. Not by the the time they end up looking for a job. You know, it's way too late. You can do it definitely with kids when they're younger. You can open their minds to the way they look at the world. But it's hard. You know, by the time you've been through education, you you can, if you're not careful, be geared into one particular way of being. Yeah, very much so. It's a very homogenising process. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I think we've covered a, a nice breadth of topics there, Rich, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Ben. Um, it's nice to have someone that just wants to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that you got um, coming up on two hundred episodes now, and this has been as big an education as anything else, university or college. You know, it's just hearing that range of stories of, like we said, that many people from different cultures, and it's just been an absolute joy, really. You know, a constant education. So, yeah, it's great. I love to just listen to people's stories. It, it is amazing. I, I think the more we're open to talk to other people, the better things become. And the more we're willing to throw away old ideals if we're proven to be wrong. You know, we talk a little bit within the team as well about having, you know, strongly held, you know, strong ideas or strong opinions lightly held. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I will strongly, vociferously believe something is right until somebody shows me it's not. And then I'm like, OK, well, we'll throw that away and start again. Yeah, uh, and and I think that that's what we need more of that that willingness to challenge all of our cliches. Oh, very much so. Yeah. We all need a bit of an audit. Yeah, and just put ourselves in front of some really interesting people. So thank you, Ben. It was lovely to to get to meet you 
Um, oh, my pleasure, likewise. Big thank you to Rich Jones from Wasson Love for taking the time to chat today. Big thank you to the founding supporter of the show, Illustration X. You can check out their global range of illustrators and animators over at illustrationx.com and at we are illustrationx on social did a lot of good work for the industry helping get those intellectual property rights when it comes to ai they've always been doing great stuff on that front it's why they're a b corp it's why they're good guys and it's why they've always been supportive of this show despite the amount that i waffle <laughs> have an awesome week guys i'm not going to do that i'm not going to dally i hope you enjoyed the show big episodes coming up get in touch hello bentallon.com or at bentallon i'll see you soon <laughs>